I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Room 104 podcast with Cormac Moore and Sir Shalon. FM 104. Cormac and Sir here. Good evening. I hope you're well. Chatting a little bit earlier on about maybe strange things that you find attractive, things that mightn't be the usual traditional thing that you find attractive. We had a lot of weird messages in. But when it comes to the sound of someone's voice, what is it that makes it attractive? A new study that's come out of the University of California, Irvine, um, has looked at the sound of men's voices or or maybe how we speak and what is the most attractive to to women, traditionally speaking. Um, It turns out that maybe mumbling might be an attractive way to speak for men. Um, when it comes to attracting a, a heterosexual partner, I should say. Listen, to explain all of this a hell of a lot better than I will, we're delighted to welcome from the university who was involved in this study, Dr. Daniel Stair. Sir, how are you? Great, thanks. Thanks for having me in. Now, mumbling to me irritates me so much and I always think it might be a sign of a lack of confidence. But where does the research lie? Well, right. So we ran a study to investigate how the clarity of articulation impacts how people find attractive voice. Um, So what we did is we had a a large sample, so 42 college students, both men and women, come into the lab and we recorded them doing a variety of different speech tasks. So they were pronouncing words as well as sentences. And then we had a separate pool of people uh, judge the attractiveness of the voice. And before we started, we had some interesting hypotheses about how uh, clarity might be related to vocal attractiveness. So the first one was that there actually there's actually a large sex difference in the intelligibility or how easily people understand the voice. Um, so in tests where they have uh, people uh, transcribe speech, uh, people make fewer mistakes with the speech of female talkers than those of males. And it also turns out that there are um, acoustic differences between the speech of men and women, such that women produce vowel sounds that are acoustically more distinct or they contrast more. So typically when you find sex differences like that, the research tends to show that, um, uh, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, it tends to be the outcome of the choices of our ancestors, you know, having certain preferences which get passed down and they explain it through the lens of like sexual selection. Um, so preferences for certain traits were adaptive and they were useful because they were sort of markers of, of good genes. So a second hypothesis is that reduced clarity tends to be associated with certain speech motor disorders. Um, so for instance, Parkinson's disease and Down syndrome are distinguished by reduced clarity and imprecision of articulation. So you could say that clarity is also sort of an indicator of health and signs of health 
are typically strongly related to uh, attractiveness as well. Um, the third hypothesis is also kind of an interesting one, a variety of models that go into the name of processing fluency accounts. And basically they say that uh, objects which are uh, more easily processed, uh, we tend to like more. So for instance, in art, things that have greater symmetry uh, or figure ground contrast, we tend to find more pleasing. So you could sort of adapt the same sort of model to uh, the voice and you know, speech that is easier to understand or sort of minimizes the demands on processing uh, could also be more attractive. So what is the perfect voice then? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, you know, one thing I like about studying the voice is that it's so complex. You know, it's it, it's so complex. It's it's definitely multivariate. So there actually does exist a respectable amount of literature on vocal attractiveness. Um, it's not quite as much as, for instance, visual attractiveness of the face or body. But one of the main things that people have studied is the pitch of the voice, uh, finding that women tend to prefer, prefer males who have a slightly lower pitch and males tend to prefer females with slightly higher pitch. Also, things like the breathiness of the voice is something that people have studied. So we hope that our, our study just kind of adds an extra layer and kind of takes it one step further by investigating the clarity of the voice as well. Where then does the, the mumbling aspect fit in? Because obviously the what made the headlines over the last couple of days was women see, you know, on average, women seem to find mumbling voices more attractive, which would kind of go against some of the stuff that you mentioned, because I imagine mumbling would require would require more processing and more concentration and more, you know, you got to figure it out if someone's kind of like, you know, nearly, <laughs> nearly sound drunk. But what did you discover with this latest bit of work that you did? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, so mumbling could be a sign of uh, maybe a speech motor disorder. Um, and it also, like you said, increases the processing demands of the observer. However, when you get to the the, uh, the third hypothesis about um, uh, sex differences between men and women, you know, those sex differences probably exist because of the forces of sexual selection. And you could make the case that, you know, maybe they exist because, you know, we prefer increased clarity in female talkers, or perhaps because we prefer less clarity in male talkers. So ahead of time, you know, we weren't really sure. I think my intuition was that it was going to be a strong predictor for the attractiveness of female voices. But you could also make the make the case that, you know, maybe mumbling is sort of a, a sign of masculinity and perhaps that, that people like that in, in male voices. Is it that we just don't want to listen to men, that the, the more quiet and mumbly they are, we're like, yeah, it's fine. We don't care. I would say that men are more likely to mumble than women in general. Some people in the UK, like, I, th I feel like they're, I'm not real knowledgeable at all the different dialects and stuff, but I almost feel like some of the men, they almost sort of deliberately do it. Like they're trying to prevent you from understanding what they're saying. How, how might the mumbling be linked to masculinity though? As in, if we're looking at it as a sign of, of, of that kind of trait. Yeah. I mean, it really started from, from this, just this observation that there is a sex difference. We didn't really go into like, you know, how did it get there um, or what is the mechanism behind it, but it exists. So, you know, men produce speech, which is less clear. And, you know, I'm not really sure. It's an interesting question. Yeah. Like, you know, sort of like, you know, I, I don't really have to be clear about what I'm saying. Like, you like a lack of effort or whatever. It's just like, hey, whatever. I don't, I don't, I don't have to put too much effort into this because meh. It obviously changes then from country to country. And then obviously different accents and stuff are more attractive. And, you know, what we would find attractive maybe wouldn't be attracted to somebody else, you know? How does accents play a part in this as well? Yeah. There's some interesting studies that have looked at that. Um, you know, there are um, differences between different cultures and different places. However, there do seem to be pretty consistent findings. Uh, there are a variety of quantitative measures of the clarity of speech. Um, so the main one that we looked at is this idea of uh, vowel space size, which sort of related to, to the way that the speech signal is produced. So 
starts with the vibration of the vocal cords, um, which produces the main signal. And then that energy gets um, passed through the, the rest of the vocal tract, where it sort of resonates and produces certain resonant frequencies, which really kind of define the quality of the vowel sounds and, and the speech sounds that come out. Um, and of course, as you move, you're constantly changing the uh, position and size and, and shape of your, your mouth and your articulators. So that changes the resonant frequencies. So you can take a, uh, a large set of vowels and you can sort of map out how distinct they are from each other in terms of these acoustic properties. That measures what they refer to as vowel space. And then is there anything else in your research that you kind of found interesting? Yeah. We found a large degree of consensus in mm. what people found attractive in voices. And there was even a high degree of consensus between male and female listeners in our study. Um, this is sort of a sidebar conversation, but we collected some pilot data where we asked people to listen to a large set of voices and rate their attractiveness on a scale from like one to 10. It's called like a Likert rating. And um, one of the things we noticed is that males tended to give fellow males uniformly lower ratings of attractiveness. And it actually replicated uh, one or two other studies which have been published, which is great. I love replicating findings. I was sort of concerned about that, you know, that it might sort of bias the, the, the ratings or, or the, the analysis of the data. Um, one of the other studies suggested that perhaps men are just uh, unaccustomed to rating the attractiveness of other men. Um, and then other alternative explanations are available, you know, perhaps involving uh, cultural taboos related to masculinity and so forth. So we actually ended up changing the paradigm. Instead of asking people to give, you know, a rating one to 10, we did a paired comparison approach where we played two voices, one right after the other, and asked the participants to pick the one that they found more attractive. So essentially, we forced people to uh, make a choice. We found really high agreement between men and women for talkers of both gender. So essentially, we had to trick our participants into giving a truthful answer, and it worked. <laughs> if there was um, someone listening right now who wants to be more attractive to the opposite sex or a man, like, would you just tell him to increase his, his mumbling around women and that should, you know, do it for him? Well, OK, I, I should actually clarify one thing. Um, when the press uh, kind of caught wind of our study and uh, wrote articles about it, they sort of misrepresented our findings. If anybody wants to go and find out any more information about the research that you've done, where is the best place to go online? Um, so I believe the article is open access. And the title of the article was ex uh, Examining Vocal Attractiveness Through Measures of Articulatory Working Space. And it came out in the Journal of the Acoustical Society of America. You're listening to the Room 104 Podcast with Cormac Moore and Sir Shalong. FM 104. It's Room 104. It's Cormac here with you on your Friday evening. Now, yesterday might have seen that the uh, Justice Department launched a new campaign highlighting and, and obviously trying to remind everyone that sharing intimate images of other people without their consent is uh, not only abhorrent and a very, very bad thing to do, but going to be uh, illegal. And um, to help raise awareness with that campaign, somebody who's been personally affected by this is uh, founder of Goss.ie, the uh, entertainment website here in Ireland, Ali Ryan, and she joins us now on the line. Ali, how are you? I'm good, Cormac. How are you? Good. You had a busy day yesterday, and uh, obviously this is an issue that I think we all kind of know about, it's like, oh yeah, but it's probably a hell of a lot bigger and more serious than maybe we want to believe at the moment. Yeah, I think everyone has always known in their heart or in their gut or whatever that, you know, sharing images or videos of people having sex or nude selfies that, you know, you just know were sent by someone's ex or 
someone's boyfriend and it's sent around and you know you shouldn't have it but you forward it anyway things like that that's been around for a very long time but now for the very first time that's actually illegal and even saying that words those words out loud is crazy like until December of this year that was not illegal not only to take a photo or a video of someone without their consent but to share it it wasn't illegal whereas now what we were launching yesterday is the initiative just so people understand the new legislation which is Coco's law so that came in in February a lot of people will know that for from mm. Jackie Fox she um really pushed that bill through her daughter lost her life to suicide after she was being bullied online but there's two parts to the legislation there's online harassment and then there's the sharing of images and photos of their consent which has kind of been dubbed revenge porn that's what i would call it mm-hmm. um so now that's illegal and if you even forward a photo or video on your phone you don't, don't have to have taken it but if you forward it you could now face up to seven years in prison wow i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com/people today Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Ow. Yeah, it's it's serious and I think it, it needs to be serious and that's why I suppose I lent my name to the campaign because I wanted people to understand why it's so serious and why there needs to be such strict um, prison sentences for this because basically it's seven years with intent and it's 12 months without intent. So if you share it not knowing someone didn't consent, you could still face a year in jail. So I think it's just to show people that this is going to be taken so seriously. And I'm sure you know yourself, Cormac, like this problem is so prevalent, especially among the younger generation. You know, TikTok, Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook, people send all sorts of things all the time. And what we just want to get out there is we want people to think twice when they get something instead of forwarding it to the lads group or forwarding it to the girls, stopping and just going, you know what, actually, this could really ruin someone's life. And also 
understanding that I could actually get in serious trouble here. How, you know, if you are in a position fortunate enough to re- to discover that your pitches have been shared online, like how do you go about re- reporting that? Yeah, so as a part of the new campaign, now you can contact hotline.ie. So you can go on there and you can tell, you can tell them that you're a victim or even if you get sent a photo, you can report that photo, you can report that video and then they'll liaise with the guards. But if you're a victim yourself, like you can also go to the guard station, you know, like they're, they've all been trained over the last couple of months. They know exactly how to handle these sort of situations. They know the law and there'll be an investigation straight away. And it just wasn't like that before. And, you know, for a lot of people, this bill is too late, including myself, you know, like there's a lot of victims out there that have had this happen to them and they were literally helpless. There was nothing they could do. So I would urge anyone who's listening that has been through it or maybe has a friend that's been through it or maybe they've seen something in the last few weeks that they know is not right to go on to Hotline, just have a look, see what they're all about um, and encourage others to report this. Uh, hotline.ie if you want to go um, check it out. But you mentioned there, obviously you were the, the face of this campaign launch yesterday and are obviously very strongly involved in it and for, for very, I suppose, di- difficult reasons because as you mentioned, you were tormented with this for a, a number of years before you decided enough was enough and you're going to go do something about it. Do you mind telling us what happened to you? Yeah, so basically six years, it was six years ago now, feels like a lifetime ago, um, I found out that a man that I had slept with, a man that I trusted, um, had filmed us having sex without my consent. The only reason I found out about that is because a woman got hold of the video and she started threatening to release it. So she told me this video existed and constantly threatened the release of it. And I mean, this was well before the whole era of Me Too and like the Harvey Weinstein trial. I feel like things are quite different now. Mm. Um, But back then, I just really felt like, God, there's no way anyone's going to believe me if I say that I wasn't a part of this. And I, you know, that's kind of what happened basically very, very quickly. A lot of people in Dublin found out about it. You know what the Dublin social scene is like, Wormack? It spread like wildfire. You know, Ali Ryan has a sex tape. It was just this piece of salacious gossip like no one cared to ask me was I okay what had happened so many people didn't even realize that this video had actually happened without my consent it was just laughed about and that honestly went on for about five years there were six years now into it so for about five years I've had to deal with this on my own literally not telling anyone being terrified to talk about it because before now there were no laws against sharing it so if I had done an interview with you two years ago talking about this, any of your listeners could have looked up that video, found it and shared it. And I wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. No one would have faced any sort of punishment. So I was literally living in constant fear. Like I obviously wanted to talk about it. I wanted people to know the truth, but I was just constantly, constantly terrified. And I think the reason why I got involved in the campaign, basically what happened was I knew the bill was going to be passed in yeah. 2020 at some point um, so I was waiting for it to happen I'd actually already written my story and I was just waiting and waiting and then the pre- president Michael G Higgins he signed it into state um, in December 27th and I just published a piece on ghosts and after that it just went like wildfire I didn't know how it was going to be taken but people took it so well but the reason I wanted to do that was I just think people needed to understand what the trauma was like because I don't think people get that when you have a video or you have a photo like that they forget that there's a real person on the other side of that yeah. phone or the other side of the WhatsApp. And you don't think like, does this woman know this video is out there? Does this woman know she's being filmed? You know, like there's so many stories, which I'm sure like you might've heard some before of like, you know, 
a guy, you know, has a photo of his wife, sends it around to one guy and suddenly it's forwarded and it's forwarded and it's forwarded. And like then a thousand people have seen it and no one stops and goes, I wonder how that person is. Are they okay? And so the trauma of it, I just really felt I had to tell people how bad it was. Like I did really, really struggle with my mental health all that time. That's what I wanted to to, to ask you just to jump in. Like, did you, did you change as a person? Did you notice yourself becoming different to what you were beforehand? Oh yeah, absolutely. And the funny thing is, I don't think I really realized it until I actually published that story on the site in December. When I published it, such a weight lifted off my shoulders. I felt like a completely different person. And I was like, oh my God, I have been an absolute shell of myself for the last five years because it did affect me so much. I used to wake up every, and I'm not exaggerating, every single morning I'd wake up and I'd be like, today's the day. This is the day that it's going to go viral. Like this is the day it's going to be put up on YouTube or put up on a porn site. Like every morning I'd wake up with just an instant panic attack. Like it was an exhausting way to live. I honestly lived like that for the first two years. Like I used to always just wake up thinking that that was what was going to happen. And it got to the point where I genuinely like just could not see a way out. Like I honestly just did not want to live. Like I don't know how I actually got through those first two years because it was such a dark time. And I was also trying to run my company and you know, a lot of what went on, obviously, people that had seen the video or shared the video were in this industry. So I had to mm. go to events and see those people and stand there and try not to fall apart and pretend that everything was OK. And I, for years, I lied about it when people asked me, was it true? I would laugh it off and say it wasn't real because I just didn't know how to handle it. So I was just lying, pretending to be someone else, going to these events. I weighed so heavy on me and you know, even if I started dating a guy, I'd have to tell him because I was like, what if he's seen it? What if he's yeah. heard about it? It was such a burden to carry around all the time. And then like I had to tell my family, my sisters, my mom, my dad, like it felt like I had this like horrible secret, like I had murdered someone or something. Yeah. And I kept having to tell people I kept having to hold it inside and not be able to tell the world, but tell like people who were close to me and explain what happened. And that just weighed on me so much. So like talking about it now has felt like almost a confession. It's like, right, let me get it out there. And the thing is like, I was intimidated for so long. Like I was constantly threatened with the release of the video. And then later on within the five years, like around year four, I remember when Bloggers Unveiled was huge. Everyone loved Bloggers Unveiled. I was targeted on that a few times. And the reason I hated that page so much is because I was terrified that someone was going to try and send them the tape. And they actually did. And I was blackmailed by a complete stranger who said they were going to send them the video and that it was going to go everywhere and they wanted money in return and all this sort of stuff. And it was just awful. And I remember I went to the guards and I told them I was being blackmailed. I was just sitting in this cold, horrible guard station telling them the story. And like, they were like, look, on the blackmail front, we can help you out there because, you know, that's against the law. But the video and having it and all that stuff, they were like, that's not illegal. Like, there's nothing we can do to help you with that. So it was four years later. I was still like, how is this nightmare still following me around? Like, I could not escape it. And that's the thing with these sort of stuff, like a video or a photo, like I've never seen it ever but I will never know for sure if it's gone away. Like, you know, everything online stays online forever. Like I could be in my fifties and someone could send it to me and be like, I just found this. I will never truly know if it's gone or not. And that's the fear that I had all the time. And because it wasn't illegal, 
I was like, sure, anyone could upload it and nothing was going to happen. So I just, I felt so helpless. I felt so alone. I felt very judged, very so shamed within the industry. Like a lot of people just thought, oh, sure, Ali loves wearing low-cut tops. She's obviously promiscuous. She definitely was well up for this video. It's her own fault. You know, that was kind of the conversation rather than someone just for one second stopping being like, this isn't right. Like, where did we get this video? Why is it being shared? Is she okay? Like, no one ever asked me that. So, God, yeah, I mean, and this, as you said, such a small town and such a small country that everyone knows everyone about everyone's business and you're kind of suffocated. And I can't, like, I can't imagine what that would be uh, like or how you handled it. And fair play to you for, for doing that on top of running your own company as well, because that's its own nervous breakdown waiting to happen as well. You know what I mean? But to, um, to if there's someone... Who, who might have been in your situation is someone who's listening right now who's in your situation and who feels that shame and that terror and who's, who's having their images shared around by an ex or by somebody else and is either too afraid to report it or too afraid to ask for help what would you say to them? The number one advice I'd have to anyone is just to talk to someone if you're not ready to report it you really do just have to talk to your family talk to your friends like people will understand like since I posted my article I've had like 1700 messages and so many of them are from women who are going through this right now. And it's exactly what you just said there. They're so terrified to even report this. And one of the things I would say that I think is really important about this legislation that I don't think people fully understand, even threatening to share an image is illegal under this legislation now. So if you're in a situation right now where your ex or a a co-worker or someone has a video or photo of you and they're threatening you, that is enough. You can go to the guards today. Yeah, that is enough. It does not matter. If they're joking, it doesn't matter if they never actually intend to do it. They can still face jail time. They can still get serious fines. So I would definitely say that to people because I think that's what a lot of people are worried about, right? They're like, I'm getting threatened with the release. So if I go to the guards, if I tell someone, they're definitely going to release it. So they need to know that number one, the threat alone is illegal. And number two, if worse comes to worse and they do share it, they will literally be facing jail time. And I think it's just so important to talk about it because one of the big feelings I had that I had to kind of keep underneath all the time was shame. And you do feel ashamed of yourself when these things happen. Like I didn't even partake in the video and I still felt it was my fault. But there's other girls or guys like it's totally a genderless crime. It happens to both people. But unfortunately, it's more so women. But girls might have sent a video to their boyfriend or they might have sent a sexy picture to their boyfriend. That still does not mean it's your fault. Like if you should be able to share something intimate with somebody you trust without the fear of it getting out. So even if you feel like, oh God, if I tell them people are going to judge me, they're going to ask me, why did I send that? Why did I do this? It doesn't matter. And also it doesn't matter with this legislation. It doesn't matter if you send 700 videos to your boyfriend as soon as he forwards it to one other person without your consent, he's committed a crime. And if you want to report that crime or even just take the first steps in figuring out how you'll go about it, you can check out the new uh, way to report that online. Hotline.ie is your first place so you can go and check it out. Um, if you want to read Ali's story, I take it it's still up on Goss.ie or on your Twitter profile, I think. Yeah, it's pinned to my Twitter and it's still on Goss, yeah. Brilliant. Ali Ryan, thanks a million for coming on and sharing your story on FM104 tonight. Thanks. You're listening to the Room 104 podcast with Cormac Moore and Sir Shalon. FM104. It's Cormac here on Room 104. Now, it's a Friday night, so, you know, we should be in nightclubs. At least the bars are back open, but late night has been probably affected the worst in this country. We have gotten a date, so you might be back in a nightclub sooner rather than later, October 22nd. For the moment, who knows what that might change. But um, to just talk about the recent announcements and their campaign that they've been 
been working on over the last number of years as well. I'm delighted to welcome back to FM 104, Sunil Sharp, sir, from Give Us a Night. How are you? Good, good. Thanks, Cormac. Thanks for having me. Was it good news for you guys during the week with the latest rounds of announcements? I'll be honest, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. I, I, don't, I don't fully buy it, I've got to say. I'm a, I'm a little bit sceptical, very sceptical about that uh, October 22nd date. And that's the one we're looking at. I mean, in the run-up to the announcements, there was a lot of... Uh, there was a lot of positive media leaks around uh, live music coming back in September. But then when you actually read the fine print and the detail, it, it's essentially what we already have, except a few more people allowed allowed indoors. Now, I think we're kind of transitioning now because we're going from seated gigs to maybe people standing, you know, and it's like and dancing is now just there's no dancing as an actual guideline now, you know. So, but it does mean you could dance, but it's not recommended and the governments would prefer if people don't. But uh, I, I, I think people may start, end up standing. So we're, gonna, we're in this weird transition. I think, you know, I think in some places, I mean, listen, who knows how some of these gigs will go. But, you know, as it is now, what I'm seeing is not they're not gig gigs. You know, it's great mm. for people to, to, to get back to doing a bit of gigging. It's great that certain venues may feel that they can afford to open. It's going to be, it's going to be difficult operating with a 60, 60% capacity. But yeah. In relation to the 60% capacity, I know that some theatres and venues, especially I think, you know, seated gigs would be very difficult to make them financially viable. Like when it comes to the 60%, do you think a lot of people might be turned off and turned away from gigging and doing things again, you know? I, I think it, it would be more difficult for the late night operators who, who would have additional licensing costs. Although there's a bit of a question mark above that now, whether or not the governments are going to continue on those costs. I mean, we did get, uh, we did have a quite positive engagements with the government earlier on in the week, uh, including the, the Taoiseach Tarnish and Minister Martin when it came to licensing. So although we didn't see everything that we wanted in the roadmap, I, I think we did get a, a more solid uh, commitment in terms of licensing, speeding up licensing changes. But in the short term, trying to waive those fees those special exemption order fees but in terms of the short term because you know that will be a little bit later on and from the end of October best case scenario but let's see but the in the meantime the 60% from what I can see most venues are planning something mm. but not but not all you know for especially for a, a you know a certain type of live music venue or a, a nightclub that could be driven by a you know kind of big headliner shows yeah. as well where yeah. the budgets could be pretty high too and you know where they need their full complement of staff I mean that's that's going to be very difficult to make with at 60% capacity. And also one of the questions that hasn't been fully answered yet as well. Early on in COVID, a lot of agents were talking about wanting to work with promoters and, you know, drop fees and work with them. And our artist really understands this. But I kind of think all bets are off now again, you know, and from what I'm hearing, fees are there. They certainly haven't dropped uh, because of COVID, you know, so you probably, be, I guess, a promote some promoters will have additional insight on that. But from speaking to some venues and promoters about it, it doesn't seem like they have to kind of budget pretty much as they were uh, pre-pandemic oh, really? in terms of headliners, which would bring you to the question in terms of like DJ shows as well, is whether the focus here in Ireland should be more on Irish acts and general and and we have enough irish headliners now too so i'd love to see that this new this new era that we're moving into after this transition that it can be a real reawakening of irish nightlife and celebration of 
of what we have right here. We, we've been talking a lot in the past about kind of developing that circuit again around the country, you know, and obviously making cities like Dublin much better for nightlife than they have been over the last decade. So I think it's very exciting. And I, 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 I think as well, uh, the Irish and Irish acts, they don't have to just be the, the support show or the support slot at least um, yeah. anymore you know there's a lot of you know solid headliners in their own right and I think that's a, an advantage that a lot of uh, promoters have here now in terms of being able to to, to fill fill venues with Irish acts you know so uh, 100% even even I've seen a lot of um you know, new Irish acts uh, Leah Hart comes to mind who's a young Irish singer songwriter and she's just sold out the, the the venue that she was on I think it was in the Button Factory but like only released tickets like a couple of days ago and I still know it'll be limited capacity but as you said a lot of the younger acts coming around have their own crowds and followings and it's going to make it easier for, for everyone to you know tick that box for the acts for the promoters for the venues as well um, just I'd love to get your opinion on right the last nearly two years now God at this stage but the last whatever 18-19 months the nightlife industry has been hit the hardest obviously with the reasoning because there's so much mingling of people in nightclubs and in venues. Uh, so much mingling that that's ground zero for a virus like this to kind of spread or whatever. And I know other countries have tried different approaches earlier on, but if you were if you were in charge and you were able to make the decisions over the last year, what would you have done differently to what was done? Like when would you have looked at opening and, and how would you have done it? I think last year was difficult all around, but I think there what what I where I would have started was with outdoors. I think we we could have had a more blended, or, or uh, what would be the best way of putting it? We could have employed a more kind of blended approach to this. So what I would have done is, um, like we were told this year, for instance, it was going to be an outdoors summer, you know, mm. and really last year should have been an outdoors summer as well. And it didn't really come. And I think it was, I think for a lot of the the, the public, it would, like the last 18 months, it's been a complete meltdown really for a lot of people. We've all had our moments, you know, and I think when the summer and the, the nice weather came along, there was a really great opportunity to test more events outdoors. So I would have started with outdoors. Um, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor or scientist and I don't want to necessarily like, I still have my doubts about indoors if we were to just return, obviously, to the way that it used to be. Yeah. So I think we have to tread carefully here. We need to get it right. And I mean, some venues are already investing in, and new ventilation systems and uh, uh, carbon dioxide monitors and all of this. But at the same time, you know, there are, it all really depends how, I don't want to say how brave we, we are with the virus, but how, to some extent, how ambitious or how much we really want the nighttime industry or the events industry to get out of this. We're, we're easy kind of collateral damage. And so for want of yeah. a better word, we're easy to just sort of, you know, toss to the side and go, well, you know, we don't really need them reopening again. Sure. They're only going to add to the case numbers. So, you know, on one hand, we want to come back safely, you know, but what I, what I think the best way to have, have eased ourselves into that would have been to open outdoors and to do dance events outdoors. Why not i mean lots of people were dancing i mean i saw guards dancing on cliffs and you know i saw some of the best moments i saw like was from yeah. um oh i forget the name of the estate down in uh uh down in irish town where they were where oh they yeah were dancing to i think it was in irish town or rings end where they were dancing to wigfield saturday night and i think i think dancing in general some of the some of the more uplifting moments we've enjoyed during uh this pandemic have, have been due to to watching people or being involved in dancing you know mm. and i think um i, I think the dancing element 
Parliament's been kind of locked down legally in the way that it has has been. Uh, it, it, it could have we could have got back to dancing a little bit earlier in the outdoors, I believe, and I think that would have built up a little bit more confidence in terms of the the nightclub and nighttime industry and even live music events uh, returning a little bit earlier. We haven't had any real proper gigs in in eighteen months, you know, and I think. I, I think even between now and October, and I know I said earlier that I was kind of sceptical about mm. the governments um, because I just don't know how a country like Ireland that has been as cautious, and you could argue as overly cautious as Ireland, how we are ready to just go gung-ho into this on October 22nd. There's a, a part of that I don't fully buy. I'm hopeful. I'm very, very hopeful. And if we do, we if we are at the stage where COVID isn't the threat that's, that it could be and that we are ready to go back Brilliant. Bring it on. But I do think the government need to work more with the industry in the meantime so that there's no misunderstanding and that also that we can communicate it to the rest of the industry as well. Maybe what's expected of them too. most operators do know what's expected of them. And, are, you know, I, I've, I've full confidence in the industry, but there are some their best practices developing all the time. You know, and this is it, this is really the government's job as well. You know, I, I, I think when it comes to nightlife stuff, they don't analyze this. And get into the thick of it in the in the in the mat in the manner and way that they need to actually because uh, it's there's a lot of layers to this you know and there's and the technology even around ventilation for instance that's advancing all the time too you know and i think um other countries have reopened they haven't got it fully right in ireland and um, with decision makers here we tend to point to those countries and say they got it wrong instead of looking at maybe how those uh those countries addressed it or how other countries who learned from those bad experiences addressed it or are improved improved on that um, uh, um uh, see basically when you see something going wrong it's not like well they got it wrong it's kind of like well how can we do it better you know yeah. and i think you, you have seen that in belgium for instance they saw what went wrong in holland and now they've addressed it and they you know the the recent nightclub pilot in brussels uh, by all accounts was it was a big success you know uh, holland as well i mean all of these countries i was a little bit surprised with holland actually that they but when I saw how loose they were in terms of testing and it, it just it, it was it was always going to turn into a mess. The, the problem with Holland, if you can call it that, is, is uh, it's not really a problem. But in COVID, it is, is that they rely so heavily on their like their festival industry and music industry and nightclubs. It's a big part of their, yeah. their economy. And uh, it is I mean, it can be here as well. I mean, we have a big events industry, too. But they you know, there's so many festivals in in Holland and, you know, being shut for a second, uh, second summer. I, I don't know. There was just so much, uh, such a huge drive to get reopened there. And perhaps it was done prematurely. Yeah, we, we interviewed one of the event organisers in from one of the dance gigs who'd been involved in a few of those festivals at the start of the year. And, and some of them went, uh, you know, very well. And they ran one of the first... Uh, indoor dance gigs, like 1,100 people, I think, or 1,200 people, and, and they had, you know, implemented testing on the way in, and, and they had kind of segregated the venue just into four parts, as opposed to putting people in pens like we did in Kilmainham. They just kind of segmented the mountain in four parts, and, and you know, people were en entering from different ways, and there was very little overlap. So if there was an outbreak, it was ideally contained to the, um, you know, to that one pod of 250 people, for want of a better word, and it was inside, and it seemed to work worked well, and some of the festivals worked 
worked well as well. And I know that kind of in the last month or two, they've had a few issues and a few serious outbreaks. So there, there was, as you said, stuff to be addressed there as well. But I suppose the, the most frustrating thing I imagine for people in the nightlife is that there was at least in Holland, there was a will to kind of go, how can we help you guys get back to work and let's let's do something as properly as we can and, and then take it from there as opposed to, I imagine a lot of people in your industry are just, you know, I don't know, just deflated. Yeah, yeah, well, there's a difference. There's a di- in Holland, they take pride. I mean, in in electronic music and club culture. So I I I know for a fact that a lot of Dutch were quite embarrassed by that, you know. Whereas here, it, it wouldn't be like if something like that happened here, it'd be like, ah, we knew it had happened. We shouldn't have let you open and shut us down again, you know. Yeah. But there's a different type of support and infrastructure there for for nightclubs and uh, and events in general. The event industry is supported. Um, it's just on another level in countries like Holland. It doesn't yeah. like that's not to necessarily knock Ireland and where we can take it in the future. And I think I think this has been a little bit of a wake up call to the government. And I hope they're going to act and 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 learn from the last eighteen months in terms of what this event industry needs and, and how much it can actually help the country in general if if they get behind us. I mean, there's a lot of talk about mental well being and togetherness and community and all of this, but you can't just expect that and assume that that's all going to fall into place without sufficient support, yeah. not just financial support, but general support, removing some of the red tape and um, enabling people to put on events and being just a little bit more daring sometimes as well. I mean, even just going back to the, the, the recent regulations, I'm going to just bounce away from festivals and large events for a moment, but even pubs like why can't they open till half 12? Why can't they just go back to half 12 instead of half 11? Why you have these big announcements and then Nothing's really changed. You know, what does one hour difference really make? You know, so just I, I get where the government and I, I, by the way, the government don't have an easy job here. We all know that. But I just think just push it out a little bit. Don't like just it just seems to be so strange yeah. sometimes. Just just let it go. You, you're telling everyone you're going to let it go. But actually, you're not. You're 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 telling us that you're going to wait till very, very close, probably to October 22nd until you're going to let us know. And then then things might change. So it's just, it's still kind of safety by numbers. And I understand it kind of has to be if you're in the government, but at some point it's, it's, you know, it's like parents trusting their children or not. (laughs) You just have to let them go and do their own thing. And I think most other countries have, you know, we, we don't tend to work that way here in Ireland. So it doesn't work that way here. Unfortunately not. Uh, If you've just tuned in, by the way, I'm talking to uh, Sunil Sharp from the Give Us the Night campaign, who has been obviously working with the nightlife industry and promoters and clubs for the last uh, nearly two years on the whole COVID situation. But briefly, because, you know, I think we could, we could chat for hours on the, the, the shafting the nightlife industry has gotten from the government the last while. But before all of this kicked off, you were inv- and you still are involved in a campaign that was looking at reforming some of the the, the nightlife um, rules and regulations that they're currently at the moment. Can you give us a, just a brief, maybe summary of, in that regard, when COVID is all gone, how you'd like to see nightlife changed in this country? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you exactly where it's at in terms of licensing right now is there will be a licensing bill. Um, it's actually the sale of alcohol bill, which is which dates back over 15 years now at this point. Um, I don't really like the title, to be honest, because I think a lot of licensing, it's not just about alcohol, uh, but, you know, it, it does fit into that category. And I think the next 
stage or next phase will be will be it'll it'll kind of kick off a little bit more further into the like into the last quarter of the year there's one more consultation left with the actual stakeholders i would argue that it should be much further down the tracks now than where it is i mean mm-hmm. there was a, a stakeholder engagement and, and consultation near the end of last year and then early this year and the 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 task force with which i was on you know we went with all the kind of main stakeholders and groups everyone's made their their feelings uh known you know whether they're for it or against us i think the justice department know what they need to do and they need to just get on with us i don't really think there needs to be another consultation and i think if you ask most stakeholders they tell you it doesn't there doesn't need to be a consultation so you know the justice department are very good at slowing these things down and that's why we're waiting for 15 years for this stuff now but we do have a justice minister that actually wants to change it for once and go and buy a conversation with the the heads of government the other day, uh, Leo Varadkar said that he wants it to go through. Michal Martin also expressed, uh, you know, an interest in it not taking as long as it's because, you know, at the moment, the timeline, according to the Justice Department from last February, when they made the announcements would be two years, two years. We need it now. We need it ready to go uh, for, for when venues actually reopen. And what were some I, of the main changes that were proposed in that? Well, there'll be a separation of licenses, you know, like yeah. the, the fact we've always had to operate under pub licensing is, is absolutely like it's, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, like I think I think pubs should be able to open like pubs don't necessarily like a, a pub has a time that they open till as a traditional pub. And then some of them open as late bars as, as well. And some of them generally I mean, some of them would open till three or four o'clock if they could. And I, I know like in Dublin, for instance, that last drink would be half two. I think some late bars would like to be able to go a little bit later than that. But I think nightclubs in general, there's there's more of an appetite for later hours than that. So uh, I, I think what will happen is, is there'll be a nightclub permit. And this was this was something that was first uh, proposed by the, the old Irish Nightclub Owners Association, the INIA, like I mean, they, that's going back many years now. But they, the the nightclub permit. So essentially, the Justice Department are rejigging. They're sort of almost smoothing over the whole. The old, see, they have a huge document there. That sale of alcohol bill. There's a lot of work that's been put into that. Yeah. But because it's just been kind of put aside for the in recent years, it needs to be fresh refreshed you know yeah, so yeah, refreshed yeah. at least i don't know the best way of putting it it needs to it needs a little bit of modernization of its own for us to then move ahead and actually modernize the licensing laws so i think really what we need is a proper distinction between between a pub or a bar and a and a dance club a nighttime dance club um i know not not every pub publican is going to like that idea they might think that it will it will threaten their business. I would argue that it'll actually enhance their business because we need to make our cities and towns more busy and vibrant at night. The more that there is happening, the more everyone wants variety. Everybody wants experience. If you go into a city like Dublin that has lots going on where you can do a bit of this, do a bit of that, go on to a club. That's what we want. That's what we want. That's what we want for tourists as well. We want it for locals and tourists. And we want Dublin to be that exciting vibrant place that it could be so i would just hope that in the because we've had i don't mind saying this we've had a lot of problems with publicans in the past and the vintners in the past they are part of the reason that nightlife is the way it is don't get me wrong i like a lot of a lot of of that crowd a lot of publicans and 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 that organization the lva have, have actually kind of 
you know, turned in a new direction, I think, and are a lot more open minded towards nightlife now than they were in the past. But I, I think it can't be forgotten that they were also the ones that lobbied very heavily against things like the theatre license back in 2008. Theatre license was a perfect license for nightclubs, actually, mm. at the time. It did need a little bit of maybe a couple of amendments or a little bit of it needed to be regulated a little bit better than it was. It was a little bit too easy for people to to get the theatre license who weren't really entertainment or spaces yeah. at all. They were just really getting this license to serve a, a late point. And I can understand why the pubs would have been a bit cheesed off about that at the time. But I don't I don't think any of us appreciated that really aggressive lobbying to the to the point where we didn't have a workable license, and we still have to work with these SEOs, these special exemption order costs, and you know, surprise, surprise, we've lost most of our nightclubs, you know, and that was mm. a, that was really you know that was a really negative turning point for the the nightclub uh, industry. But I I hope. Um, I hope publicans and the vintners have kind of learned from that and learned that because of those changes that happened back then. Um, did, did were pubs any better off after that because of it? I don't know. I don't think so. Were nightclubs? No. So did it do any good? No. So I mean, like I said, that that theatre license could have been t- could have been tightened up a little bit. But we've been without a license for now since then. You know, yeah, the, the yeah. SEOs don't suit don't suit nightclubs, and that's why more and more people have got out of the game, and their investment hasn't been coming in. We need to incentivize investments, and actually, publicans, although it might seem like I'm having a go at them, I'm with them. I I love the Irish pub. I, I it's a great. You know the, the traditional Irish pub, and and you know it's part it's part of it, it's its own culture, you know. And I think we can celebrate that, and we can all do it side by side. But there's a great yeah. opportunity for them. They have space, they have venues, they have places that can turn back into nighttime venues as well. So there's a great opportunity for them here, and, and I hope they're going to 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 see see that too, and and make the most of us. Because as I've said to some stakeholders in this, the licensing laws don't get changed very often, so. Get yeah. what you can while it's going. Happy days. Uh, for more information, if uh, people want to, you know, keep following along online, your website or best place to get, get use online. We've had no real need for our website, actually. It's so so just Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, the usual places. Probably Twitter and Instagram. Look for Give Us Tonight there. There, there are two, probably the two main social media. Uh, we need a complete redesign and update of our website, but we're too busy too busy trying to change things <laughs> to, to do simple stuff like Brilliant. that. But uh, yeah. Brilliant. Listen, Sunil, thanks a million for popping on F104 tonight. No, no problem. Thanks, Cormac. You're listening to the Room 104 podcast with Cormac Moore and Sir Shalon. FM 104. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.